From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Angelic Encounters for the full two hours. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And we are live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Don't forget to like it, share it, and subscribe. Now, when you're on the YouTube channel, you'll notice I've recently updated a special video version of my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. It's an interview with Deep Throat's lawyer, John O'Connor, discussing the recent bombshell, the recovered emails from Hunter Biden's laptop. Again, that's available on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, so you may want to check out that episode after, of course, you listen to uh, tonight's transmission. What do you think of when you think of angels? For many people, angels are flowing, winged, female-type creatures who enlighten, nurture, and guide people here on Earth. Some believe them to be spirit guides or benefactors, while others see them as mere protectors. Many people believe that they can be summoned or beckoned at the will of humans, while others don't believe in their existence at all. But the Bible describes angels very differently indeed. Envision around you, day and night, a valiant, thriving battle between good and evil, raging within a shrouded jurisdiction. This army surrounds you each step you take, intervenes on your behalf, and wages spiritual warfare when the human soul is at stake. Angels are the servants of the Almighty God, His messengers, agents of His will, and silent guardians who keep watch when you think you're alone. In Encounters, co-authors Ali Anderson Henson and Donna Howell dispel some of the many myths regarding these beings and reveal their true mission and purpose. Ali and Donna join me, as I say, for the full two hours. Ali Anderson Henson oversees the research army of Skywatch TV and Defender Publishing. Her exploratory works have appeared in numerous books, documentaries, magazines, and television specials. Donna Howell is the best-selling author of The Handmaiden's Conspiracy, Radicals, Final Fire, Encounters, Afterlife, and Redeemed Unredeemable. She's the current managing editor and writer-researcher for Defender Publishing and the co-host of Skywatch TV's Chalk Talk. And again, together, they are co-authors of Encounters, Extraordinary Accounts of Angelic Intervention and What the Bible Actually Says About God's Messengers. Ali and Donna, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Let me start off by asking, what inspired you to write this book, Angelic Encounters? Well, we wrote this book in response to a crisis situation which we perceived was taking place in the church. So when we're looking at the church right now, you know, unfortunately we live in a day and age where a lot of self-professed Christians do not read their Bible. And because of that, they are out of touch with what the Bible says, not only about God and and about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all about angels themselves. And what ends up happening is when we have a, a New Age invasion of the church, It's very easy for a congregation that's not aware of what angels are and what they are not. 
it's very easy for them to become distracted with things like angel worship or angel contact that takes place outside of the biblical parameters of what we're supposed to be doing. And I believe that everything in our lives is spiritual warfare. There's an unseen realm around us. And so when we are doing things like worshiping angels, we're supposed to worship God. So this kind of stuff opens us up for spiritual deception and things like that. And so in response to this movement that's kind of taking place in the church, we wrote a book about what the Bible defines angels to be. Right, and the depiction of angels in the Bible, very different on many fronts. There are some similarities, but on many fronts, very different than the popular culture interpretation of angels that that have come down to us, well, not only from television shows, but also, as we'll discuss, from the Greco-Roman uh, civilizations. Uh, Donna, over to you. Just to walk us through some of the types of myths you're looking to dispel with this book. There's a lot of them. What I have a, a major issue with, especially in some of the most recent revival trends, is I hear a lot of people saying things like, I was in this revival meeting and all of a sudden these angel wings floated down from the ceiling and there was gold dust. And it's like, I kind of want to tell them to go find the man who's hiding in the rafters. You know what I'm saying? Because I can't tell you how many times white feathers comes into conversations where people use that as an example for some kind of an angelic visitation that they've had. But to be honest with you, let me just use angel wings just as one of oh so many things that we dispel. I'll hit that one hard and fast. Angels don't have wings. Not anywhere in the Bible do they have wings, ever. The first argument that comes back is, well, wait a minute, in the throne room, we do see that the angels have wings. Now, that's actually technically not true, because in the throne room, what we have is the seraphim and the cherubim, pronounced often in contemporary languages, the seraphim and the cherubim. But these are not the same word, not in Greek or in Hebrew, not the same word as angel. In Greek, it's angelos, actually. And what we have going on with them, they are messengers. That's what that word means in Greek. It means messenger. In fact, it's so intrinsically related to the idea of delivering a message on behalf of God or a king that at sometimes such as in the book of Revelation, the seven letters written to the angels of the seven churches of Revelation, that word is often interpreted from certain theologians working on that area of Scripture to be a human, because the word in Greek can mean a human messenger as well. In other words, the seven angels in those seven letters could have been the bishops of those churches, right? The spiritual leaders of those churches? That is absolutely a possibility. Now, Mm. I am not like Michael Heiser-level theologian when it comes to, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I will tell you that there are very convincing arguments on both sides of that. But when we're dealing with a heavenly messenger, a member of what certain theologians refer to as the heavenly host, what Ali and I decided to refer to as the celestial order, this is a parent term that kind of covers all of the different created beings that work for, and work for is a very clumsy way of saying it, but it's very easy to understand, work for God in some fashion or other. Let me give you a little quick hunting dog analogy that kind of helps me make my point. If a hunter goes into the woods and he pursues to kill game, to assist him he takes three dogs along with him. The first one's the pointer breed and they identify the bush where the game is hiding. The second one's the flusher breed. They understand what angle to charge the bush so that the game will fly out in the right direction and give the hunter a good shot. 
And the third dog is the retriever breed. This is the breed that has the expert soft mouth handling characteristic that is known of that breed. These three breeds of dogs are all equally canine in nature. You can call them all canines. You can call them all dogs as a parent word that encapsulates what they are. They're all three equally assisting their master in his will in accomplishing the act of a hunt. However, you wouldn't say that all three of these dogs look like the other. You wouldn't say that they accomplish the same task or that they have the same bone structure or spots or anything else. So it would not be correct, however, to say that the pointer is the same as the flusher or the flusher is the same as a retriever. They can all be dogs. They can't all be the retriever. And so when, we, when we're dealing with the Hebrew and the Greek words when it comes to angels, and this is only just to dispel the idea of wings and feathers and gold dust, gold dust isn't necessarily, <laughs> gold dust isn't even a part of Scripture. I'm not sure where that one comes from, but it's rampant. The seraphim and the cherubim, those are the ones that have wings, and they are guardians of the throne. They are the guardians of the throne room. The, the, the cherubim, actually, they were also guardians of the gate of Eden when uh, Adam and Eve were locked out of Eden. So they are attendants to God. They don't leave God's side unless they're specifically sent to guard something. Angel, on the other hand, is a messenger, and nowhere in Scripture do you see that they have wings. Now, this is a subject that we can get into a little bit further down into the conversation, but the reason that we have wings everywhere and the fact that angels are so often in our iconography today to be you know beautiful women or even worse little babies that you feel more like you need to pick up and burp than they would protect you these are definitely icons that draw their origin from some very disturbing places Yes, and we'll get into that. So that's interesting. I wasn't aware when we talk about the celestial order and, and all of the entities in the divine council or the, the celestial order, that the seraphim and the cherubim are not angels in the way that we think of you know, the messengers. There is a distinction there. I wasn't aware of that. I have twin boys, and when they were very young, we were at their godparents for Christmas, and I was carrying my one uh, son outside, and he might have been two and a half. Outside, he looked up into a tree, and he said he saw some sort of, in his, again, he's two and a half years old. He's, I'm paraphrasing, trying to remember, but he described an entity that had wings with eyes in the wings. And we had never talked to him about anything about seraphim or cherubim or angels or anything like that. And someone suggested that the eyes in the wings might be a description of a seraph. Does that sound plausible? We do actually have, for instance, in Ezekiel ten twelve, their entire bodies, including their backs, their hands, their wings, their wheels, they were covered with eyes. And so you have to wonder, because here's the funny thing. When you get to talking about the cherubim, which is the uh, character in this particular verse, you kind of have to start to differentiate from one theologian to another. There are theologians out there right now, and I'm sure, Richard, with the kind of radio that you do, this is not new to you, that believe Ezekiel, that what we consider to be a theological mess in Ezekiel, there's people that think that this is a UFO. And mm-hmm. so <laughs> you kind of you have to go into this with understanding that, yes, there are definitely 
cherubim in the Word of God, described with eyes in the wings. They're also, depending on how Scripture is interpreted, they're the ones who are living creatures in the throne room at the end of the Bible in Revelation that are given the four faces, the man, the eagle, the ox. And so you look at how these creations are being described in the Word, and even the world's most brilliant theologians have moments where they go, you know, it really could be this or it could be that. Assuming the level of hubris that it would take to say that Ali, me, Mike Heiser, any number of people who make it their life's work to study the Word has all the answers about God, that would just be hubris. On the other hand, I can tell you that there absolutely are some terrifying if not directly angels and angelic celestial host beings, as described in the Bible. There's one in the book of Revelation that it says that his head is like a rainbow, and he stands with one foot in the sand and one foot on the sea. And so these messengers of God are distinctly different from the description of what your son gave you. They're distinctly different. Now, it's interesting that you say your son mentioned what he saw. You know, I don't want to speak 100% to what your son saw, but I will tell you that cherubim are specifically noted to be guarding something, kind of like outside the Garden of Eden. They are guard angels. So it's interesting that that's what your son said he saw. Right. And Lucifer was a, a cherubim, was he not? I have heard different scholars say that he was, and I've heard others say that he was a seraphim. If you read into some of the places in Scripture where it talks about the seraphim, they're very close to the flame. And so there have even been some that have speculated that he could have even been a seraphim because of the fact that when he was cast out and then hell was created and there's fire, you know, that they've kind of likened that to be an ironic finality to his destiny. And so it could be, but most of the reading that I've done has him higher than, uh, uh, you know, a regular angel, you know, I mean, they call him a fallen angel, but the truth is, most people who really describe what he was have him at a cherubim or a seraphim level. That's the thing that's kind of difficult about that question that we get, because the word seraphim actually relates to fire. It means fiery one. And also, in a lot of, like, the hierarchy of the celestial beings, it's called on the celestial hierarchy, I think, but it's a 5th century document that was popularized by several of the church fathers and the church historians. Thomas Aquinas was one of them. And this particular document has them listed in a specific order from top to bottom. Now, the hierarchy being the seraphim being at the very, very top, and the angels being at the very bottom. And then in the midst, you have, you know, the cherubim, the thrones, the virtues, the principalities. And so it's difficult to answer this question smoothly and briefly because the problem that this positions First of all, the Bible does not specifically say one way or the other. It it refers to him by name, and it calls him, you know, all of these moments when he's falling, it describes what he does, but it doesn't specifically tend to consistently refer to him as one or the other. But what happens over here in this hierarchy idea, which is like kind of the Greek Orthodox Church is mostly what adheres to these ideas, it's kind of what I was telling you earlier with the hunter dog analogy— For instance, they say the seraphim stood around him, each having six wings. That's Isaiah 6-2. But then over here they say, so, therefore, Daniel 7-9, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. 
fire having to do with the seraphim, but fire not necessarily having anything to do with the seraphim in Daniel 7-9, because it says, who maketh his angels, which is the Hebrew term makal. So it's a little bit tricky, because they're using one verse to talk about the six wings of the seraphim in Isaiah, and they're using another verse from Daniel that's talking about an angel, but not a seraphim, to talk about the flaming fire. So that's where some of that interpretation from... I wish I could remember what it's called in Greek. It's like de celesti hierarchy or something, but it, it means on the celestial hierarchy. And it, that document is very popularized. And I'm not necessarily saying, you know, that the entire document is trash and it should be thrown out. It's extremely fascinating. But there are moments where they say, because the Bible says this about a seraphim, and then over here the Bible says this about the angels, we know that this is a descriptor of the seraphim, and that's not exactly true, since those are technically two different celestial okay. beings yeah. in the order I don't want to get too far, too far into the reads here, but let me just, we're almost um, heading into a break here. Just let me uh, get a couple of quick reactions. So, angels, are they immortal? Well, actually... They are created beings, and this means that they're eternal and not immortal. An immortal being has no beginning and no end. And we know from Psalm 148.5 that he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. So he created them, but he made them established forever and ever. So technically they are eternal but not immortal. Okay. Do they take food or, or uh, drink? We know that they can when they appear as a human. Hebrews 13.2 says that you may be entertaining angels unawares. We see in biblical examples of visitation that they, that they set with people. And, um, and they, they, we know that Lot, when they came to visit Lot in his home, that he, he made them food and gave them a place that they, they would have stayed the night if they would have stayed that long. Um, so we know that they can, they can at least do something that looks like sleep to us. We know that they can look like people and that they can eat food. Are they omniscient? Uh, uh, can they be everywhere at once? Well, we, we know that they cannot because when we read in, in Daniel, where Daniel had begun to pray, and then he was uh, the... In, the angel that was on his way to help him experienced a 21 delay uh, because of the prince of Persia, and the Michael, the archangel, came and helped him. And so if they, if they could be instantly everywhere at once, there would not have been that delay. And uh, can they read minds? Well, we believe that they cannot, and this is based on 1 Kings 8.39, where he's talking to God, and he says, For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all children of men. So while, while angels are able to visit us in our dreams and can probably put thoughts into our minds at God's command, um, and we know that the dark side can put thoughts into our minds, you know, and, and give us evil thoughts and evil temptations and things like that, they cannot, there, there's no biblical foundation for the notion um, that they can actually read and take information out of our minds. All right. Uh, Allie and Donna, stay put. We'll come back and uh, continue to delve into what the Bible says about God's messengers. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Ali Anderson Henson, Donna Howell, co-authors of Encounters, Extraordinary Accounts of Angelic Intervention and What the Bible Actually Says About God's Messengers. And we'll get into some uh, stories of angelic interventions that were uh, relayed to Ali and Donna. Uh, And then in the second hour, we'll also invite uh, listeners to call, perhaps with their own angelic encounters, uh, or they may have other questions and comments regarding the true nature and the true purpose of uh, God's messengers, angels. Um, so a couple other quick uh, questions. And, and uh, we were talking about misconceptions about angels. And one of the sort of the new age notions of, of angels is that they are, uh, they're, they're dead relatives. They become angels. Uh, you know, every time a, a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. These are people who have passed on and they become God's messengers or they are, spirit guides uh, or servants. Um, another, well, what are some of the other m- misconceptions that, that, that we have about angels, either Donna or Allie? One thing I would say really quickly, just to correct something I said a moment ago, because I definitely don't want to mislead. Lucifer uh, was in a few verses referred to as the cherub. That's actually why to this day there are uh, studies and theologies that refer to him as the anointed cherub who fell. Um, that can be found in a couple scripture verses in Isaiah as well as Ezekiel. Uh, my point earlier was that when you get into different versions of orthodoxy in this church versus that church in the history and the father, church fathers, there's interpretational um, threads that kind of branch out and go into a different uh, a different kind of conclusion that would refer to him as seraphim. I did not, I, so I apologize for that if that was a bit confusing. That's okay. That's okay. Um, all right. So some of the other misconceptions that we have about uh, angels. I think that the biggest misconception that I've seen, and this is for me the most alarming one, and that is the idea that they are our spirit guides. Um, well, I take my theology from the King James Bible. And there's really nothing that I've ever run across in the Bible to, um, to suggest that, our, that angels come to us and put us through tests or teach us life lessons. It seems that they give a message from God or they perform some kind of a miraculous intervention or they perform some kind of a ministry and then they leave. There's very little conversation. So the misconception, um, to truncate a story briefly, I knew this girl. And, uh, and she was talking to me, telling me just how tired she had been and how hard, you know, life was really hard and her marriage was having trouble. And there was just a lot going on in her life, and she was exhausted all the time. And then she mentioned that she wakes up more tired than when she goes to sleep. And I said, well, you know, I mean, what's, what's that about? Are you, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking it's her bed or her pillow or, you know, something like that. And she says, no, my spirit guide is just wearing me out right now. And I said, I, well, back up, what do you mean? And she starts telling me that, um, that she, um, she had a friend that was into some, uh, some, some different kinds of, um, of witchcraft practices, and this friend sent an entity to her, which was supposed to be her spirit guide. And um, this, this entity was supposed to help her sharpen all her skills and get her mind uh, to, to increase its power and to do all of these things for her so that she would do a better job navigating her life, basically. And so this, this, this being was coming to her at night, and it was wearing her out. And, but she, I mean, she had to worship it, and she had to perform all these things for it, all the tests that it tried to make her do. And she 
for some reason thought that this was a holy angel that had been sent to her by God. And for mm-hmm. me, this is, this is where it goes back to, you know, the fact that everything around us is spiritual warfare. And the Bible tells us that what we bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So what we worship matters. What we pay our attention to matters, and the energies that we feed matter. And so when we have something that is negative and is not a holy entity that's coming to us, and we're, we're you know, worshiping it or strengthening it and feeding it energy, what ends up happening is we are strengthening evil forces in our lives, to work in our lives. And so this is where it's really important to, this is why we wrote the book, it's really important to understand what angels are so that when we interact with something that is an angel, that we know how to interact with it. And when we're interacting with something that's not an angel, we're able to recognize it. And so, you know, we have... um, biblical examples of what a visitation looks like, and as I said, they're usually pretty brief. You know, the angel comes, he does something God sent him to do, and then he he moves right along. You know, we don't have this lingering conversation, we don't have them tasking and testing and teaching us how to increase our power and things like that. And we see, you know, uh, from, from Revelation 22, that an angel will stop you from worshiping it. If it's been sent by God, You know, we see this example in Revelation where he said, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant. And then he says, Worship God. You know, um, we also understand that when we worship the creation more than the creator, we turn the truth of God into a lie. That's Romans 1.25. And so what we have to do is test the spirits. And this is how we can dispel these misconceptions about are you dealing with a holy angel or are you dealing with a negative entity? You know, you test the spirits, and it's a pretty simple test. If it will tell you uh, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is the Son of God and has died for our redemption, you know, and was risen again and, and awaits, you know, at the right hand of the Father, these are things mm-hmm. that a holy angel will tell you. And if it won't say that, then you're not dealing with a, a holy angel. It's very likely you've got a dark entity there, and, and this is the practice of deception, because if they can get you deceived into strengthening the wrong forces in your life, you, they can trick you into self-sabotage. What, what, that, that's the easiest way for them to win the battle of, for your soul, is to trick you into doing it yourself. Right, right. So, yeah, as you say, all the more important to really, truly understand uh, the the true nature of, of God's messengers and angels yeah. and what the Bible says. Uh, so, Donna, let me ask you, we, we, we alluded to this earlier, the pagan origins of of angels and, and why we're getting it so wrong. And the roots of this go back to, um, well, Greco-Roman times. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, actually, okay, so... Before the, the, the Greco-Roman uh, times were, were, were the only technical authority for iconography or the imagery of angels, our ideas about them, the Church actually did allow, up um, early through the first several centuries, for um, different you know, kinds of artwork and, and for people to paint what, what the word said, and it looked like a man. Uh, and sometimes it was a man with, you know, the glory rays or something coming off of him, but it was a man. It was theologically accurate. What happened was the first Byzantine iconoclasm was in, you know, circa 725 to 785 A.D. 
all religious works of art that the official church of the time uh, could were destroyed. Now, this was to avoid um, object veneration or idolatry. So a Christian who worships a statue or a painting of God instead of God himself. That's what the the motive was behind this, at least religiously. And secular powers had their reasons as well, and that's a long story. So it, it became kind of an irony thing, because owning any different kinds of art that depicted God, his angels, or the saints, uh, Mary, the apostles, uh, the Trinity, any chief servants of God, anything, owning any art or uh, even a, a wall in your church with a fresco on it, would would have to be destroyed in this iconoclasm. What happened in this when human created art and and, and it it went it went to another level that also kind of intrinsically designed itself to mess with the Joan of Arc trial, which is very central to some of our pagan ide- ideas of angels um, and and how the weakness of of angels was introduced into our culture. The human-created art, or even descriptions of any of these religiously-natured servants of God, served to condescend God. In other words, you can't capture God in an image, or his servants. And if you try, you're condescending them to your own little human artist box. So when all of these images were destroyed, when all of the theologically accurate depictions excuse me, of God's angels were destroyed, the only thing that was there at the time that was culturally relevant and everywhere. The road was paved for the pagan iconography to heavily influence the religious art or the descriptions of biblical beings at that time. So Greece and Rome were the drawing board from which the resurgence of these angelic icons emerged. In art, uh, I, I like to say it this way is the easiest way of saying it, Christian angels were nearly indistinguishable from their pagan counterparts of the Greco-Roman mythological pantheon. So their gods and their goddesses in uh, Greece and then later Rome became uh, for, uh, all that we knew the Christian angels to look like. you got to remember that the origins of the Greco-Roman mythological gods and goddesses was predominantly built upon sexually deviant relationships. Okay, I've got to jump in here. Excuse me, Donna. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, continue to talk about the pagan origins of angelic iconography from the Byzantine iconoclasm. Allie Anderson Henson, Donna Howell, stay with us. Encounters is the book. Back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Ali Anderson Henson and Donna Howell here, co-authors of Encounters, Extraordinary Accounts of Angelic Intervention and What the Bible Actually Says About God's Messengers. And Donna, we were talking about the uh, the iconography that was banned uh, by the church uh, for a spell in the 8th century, and that kind of created a vacuum. So mm-hmm. people then looked back to... Uh, for their their images of of angels, they relied on these pagan images, and that introduces us to eros, um, uh, um, which we're all familiar with uh, from Valentine's Day and so forth. So, uh, talk to me about uh, about um, again this this pagan influence over our our angels. Right. Okay. So. The, the, the pantheon, the Greco-Roman pantheon, 
a lot of the gods and goddesses from that lineup, their their whole role model uh, story of their origin story is based on marital infidelity, um, necrophilia sometimes, incest all over the place, um, excuse me, hermaphroditic gods and goddesses. Uh, it's just kind of this weird liberal thing that has nothing to do with Christianity. So the intellectualism then again of the Renaissance following right behind this um, this allowed for a religious syncretism. Now, what religious syncretism is, in a nutshell, is when religions blend together. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church lost some of its societal control during kind of this great secular awakening of the Renaissance, and the lines between the holy, modest angel of God and some other artist's appreciation for the goddess Diana or Aphrodite or wherever, whatever were kind of blurred forever. That's where we found ourselves. Now, you mentioned Eros. Uh, so I'll just say, a lot of the women angels of this era, they were actually <clears throat> formed after Nike Victoria. Uh, a lot of the men were formed after uh, Mercury, who is the father of Eros Cupid, or uh, like these genie, the uh, protector spirits over people, especially if you were in the royal family. Um, and, and so, but the one that's the most offensive is the one you mentioned, the one that is behind kind of the Valentine's Day, uh, cards that we have. This cute little baby or toddler angel, he originally was a teenager, um, in the, in, uh, the iconography. He was rendered younger and younger and younger, uh, sometimes because of his ability to shoot the arrow perfectly, he was depicted blindfolded, and other times because the arrow would come from nowhere. He was depicted as um, omnipresent. So when you look at kind of some of the artwork that popped up during the Renaissance era, what you have is this little baby angel who's cute and chubby, often blindfolded, always shooting arrows, and often in several places of the picture at once. We don't understand that the god Eros, by the way, his name literally translates to sexual desire. It's, it's the word that we original, we eventually derived the English word erotic. Um, he was the winged god of erotic love, carnal lust, passion, fertility, uh, illicit affairs. His whole purpose in living was to mischievously meddle with the other gods and goddesses of the pantheon. So his arrows that he shot, they didn't create this, you know, little hearts floating down type, Twitter-pated, romantic Disney's Bambi type love, what they created was an irresistible lust in the recipient toward a specifically deviant affair. Um, and these affairs, again, were very uh, sexually divergent from what we would consider anything healthy. Even in modern times, it, it, we'd still look at that and think that what was going on with the gods and goddesses in the pantheon was, was crazy. So that's what's going on. I mean, so remember that, you know, the next time that you buy that uh, Valentine's Day card, the, the little baby angel, it, it, it draws its origins from an exceptionally immoral, uh, uh, explicit, uh, quite porne pornographic branch of paganism. So this is where a lot of this comes from. And I don't want to dominate the conversation here, but a lot of this ramped up even another notch when we get into the, the, the Joan of Arc and the trial that happened in the 1400s because of her visions of the archangel Michael. 
I, I do want to come back to uh, Joan of Arc. We've, we've just got a. This is a short segment. Uh, we, we're going to go into a break very shortly. But just uh, let me uh, let me ask uh, Ali about this. You mentioned the uh, the arrow, uh, Eros and his uh, bow and arrow. Uh, do angels carry weapons? A sword, for example. Well, we see them portrayed as having a sword. You know, the one that guards. Now we're talking about the cherubim now, but the one that guards the. Um, the gate at Eden carries a sword. It's a sword of fire, if I remember right. Um, you know, so we, we know that celestial beings do carry weapons. Um, and yet, we also see that the angels who appear sometimes appear as people, sometimes they appear in the spirit realm, sometimes they appear in a dream. And so their ability to carry weapons or not, um, you know, it... it it does seem to vary with the different accounts. Now, of the stories that people have told us for, um, for this book, uh, none of them reported seeing a weapon on, their, on the angel that visited mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many angels uh, are there? Do we know approximately? I mean, are, are we talking hundreds of thousands? Are we talking millions? How many angels are there? Well, uh, you know, if you, if you look at Revelation 5.11, 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. So (laughs) I did the math on that until I lost count, and I landed at a minimum of 100 million (laughs) angels. And so it's kind of interesting because, you know, people, we refer to guardian angels, and people refer to them as, you know, my angel, I know my angel. But what we forget is actually, even if there is a guardian angel assigned to us, which I personally believe there is, you know, um, it's not our angel. It belongs to God. <laughs> you know, it might be assigned to us, but God has lots and lots of angels, at least, uh, you know, at least 100 million and, and, and thousands more than that. And um, we only know a couple of names. I mean, Lucifer, we know he was an angel. Uh, we know Michael and Gabriel. Are those the only angels that are named? It seems to me there's a Raphael, or is that a misconception? Well, okay. So in the actual King James version of the Bible, what we have is Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Now, there are extra-biblical, you know, apocryphal books which do name other angels and some fallen angels. Uh, The Book of Enoch names quite a few, and there are a lot of other works that also name them. Um, And for me, you know, when I'm using these extra-biblical works, if they reinforce what I find in the King James Bible, then, then I, I will I sometimes cite them in my work and, and use them in my research. Um, but when, they, when I can't verify it by what's in the King James Bible, then I'm open-minded to it, but I, I don't state it as fact. So got I can it. tell okay, you I've got for to, certain sorry, I've got that to, the names three <laughs> are the ones you mentioned. Sorry. Okay, I've got to take a quick time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to talk angelic encounters and what the Bible says about angels. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. In the uh, second hour, we will get into some of the angelic encounters that are described in uh, the first chapter of Encounters. And uh, the co-authors, Ali Anderson Henson and Donna Howell, stay with us. Up until the top of the hour, I want to continue to talk about the, uh, the, the true nature of angels, what the Bible says about them, their mission, and so forth. Um, we were talking about a little bit about uh, guardian angels and how, how you believe it's likely we each have one. Uh, 
uh, it's not ours, as you say, it's God's, but it may be assigned to us. Uh, are there are there clues, uh, any way of knowing, aside from actually seeing one, uh, to know that when they might be around? What have you learned in, in speaking with people that have had angelic encounters? Other clues that we may be in the midst of an angel or in the presence of an angel? The, the common denominator that I've heard from the people who had an angelic encounter that, in my opinion, aligned with the examples that we see in the Bible. So, you know, an angel that shows up, performs, you know, a ministry or a miracle or delivers a message and, and then leaves and praises God while he's doing these things. Um, for the people that I've spoken with that have had encounters like that, the common denominator that I've seen, and it hasn't been in every case, but it, it's the most common one I see, and that is that the colors are vivid. And mm-hmm. what I continually get from these people is that um, there are no words to describe the way the colors are. You know, um, Brian Duvall, who we can talk about if you want to, um, he, he was he was l- stuck under his lawnmower in a really curved position. It, it was and he was stuck that way for a while, he could see the sky, and he said it was blue, but not blue like, like we know blue. <laughs> you know. And he really wasn't able to explain what he meant by this blue. But it, it wasn't a different color. It was just something so much more exquisite than our human eyes ever see. And that's kind of probably the most common one I hear from people who have the kind of angelic encounter um, as far as a clue that there's one around. Uh, a light out of the corner of the eye. Some of the people right. who have experienced an angelic intervention didn't see the angel head on. They saw a light out of their peripheral vision, and, and you know, the entity either helped them or spoke to them or saved them. They never saw it face-to-face, but there was a light in their peripheral. So that's another one. I know that uh, you know there's supposed to be a, a final battle between uh, good and evil, and uh, the angels presumably would be involved in that. But prior to that final battle, are God's messengers, uh, are they engaged in warfare? I mean, we talk about spiritual warfare, but what does that mean? Are they actually battling fallen angels now as we speak all around us, weapons drawn and so forth? Well, again, you know, in, in the situation in Daniel, you know, angels, um, you know, Daniel 10, Daniel had prayed, and the angel comes, and he says, now he's been 21 days, he's been delayed, and he says, fear not, the first day you prayed, the angel was on the way, but the prince of Persia delayed until Michael came to assist in this spiritual warfare. Um, you know, so we understand that when we pray, God dispatches help to us. Sometimes it's delayed because God has a perfect timing in our life, and, you know, there's a lesson we have to learn, or there's, there's some reason that God has it delayed. But that particular passage shows us that sometimes the answer to our prayer is on the way, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's delayed because spiritual warfare is happening on our behalf in the unseen realm. And here we are in this physical realm, you know, thinking that our prayers are just going unanswered, and really we don't realize that our, our prayers are being fought over in the spirit realm. And in the final battle between good and evil, what, what t- talk to me about how 
that's going to play out with and, and the role of the angels uh, really on both sides of that battle. Okay, Revelation is a book that I encourage people to study, um, but I also encourage people to remember when they study it that there are scholars who have dedicated their entire life to understanding Revelation, and they still debate with each other. So Revelation is a really Mm -hmm. complicated book. And with that being said, I can tell you my interpretation (laughs) of how this this kind of plays out. First of all, um, the angels are very involved in the judgments, and in the, um, in, in there, you know, you have the seven bowls, and there are the seven seals, there are the seven trumpets, and the angels are, are very involved in all of this. Um, and they're following God's orders the whole time. And every time God comes out victorious, you know, they are then praising God in the throne room, and you see, you see all this praise. And they, they're also, however, at the same time, all throughout the judgments, and the wrath of God, and everything that's happening in Revelation, they're also still preaching the gospel to mankind, trying to get mankind to change his ways. But there is a moment in time that God tells them to unleash the fallen angels which are chained in the Euphrates, and when they come up, then they head, they head toward uh, a place that is highly debated in, in scholarly uh, fields, but that is basically the Battle of Armageddon, and that's the final battle between good and evil. And the angels will be part of that. The fallen angels will be part of that. That's, that's kind of an all-hands-on-deck war <laughs> that will take place between good and evil. And that's not going to take place in a spiritual realm, right? That's, if you were there, uh, if you were at, is it Gog and Magog? If you were yeah. there, would you, would you see their presence? Would you see this battle taking place? It's a highly debated point because some people believe it's metaphorical. Some people believe mm-hmm. that it takes place in the spirit realm and we're not going to know it's happening. And then some people say, no, this is a literal battle. It's going to happen on the earth. Now, for me, I kind of go with that last point of view, and here's why. Because the entire book of Revelation, you see, you know, uh, the sun and the stars are damaged. A third of our water becomes bitter. You know, we lose a third of our vegetation. I mean, the earth is getting irreparably damaged at this point in time. Why would all of that happen? And then this metaphorical or spiritual realm battle occurs and and we don't see that in the physical realm everything else up to that point has been taking place in the physical realm and and it's it's climaxing toward a place where something very final happens to the earth and then it's recreated which happens at the end of revelation we have the new the new heaven and the new earth the creation of all of it um it's remade without flaws thank god <laughs> you know and and so it, to me it really seems to make sense that this would be a battle here in the physical realm because you have all this physical realm destruction taking place up to that point and will humans also take part in that battle in other words would the would god's messengers be recruiting uh believers and would the the uh, fallen angels be recruiting uh those who are not believers, I guess. I don't believe they will fight in those battles, and here's why. Because if we're watching the book of Revelation, uh, you know, the throne room becomes increasingly filled. We, you know, we have the elders come in, we have the martyrs show up under the altar. I mean, more, more people are arriving in the throne room. And what we see is a battle raging for the souls of mankind. But all throughout... We see that God, he's, 
he's asking people to turn from their wicked ways and serve him. And the the book of Revelation says periodically throughout it, man repented not of his blasphemy and his idolatry. But we also do know that some will repent, and they are the ones that are sealed in the forehead uh, by an angel, by the way. And And so we see all of this happening, but we don't see any notation of recruiting. We only see that that the humans are kind of caught in this crossfire and they're being asked to choose. So choose you this day who you will serve, that is happening in Revelation. But there is no choose you this day who you will fight with. And so my personal opinion is that this battle is taking place between entities that probably we couldn't physically stand up to, honestly. Um, and we, we will be, you know, we will be in there somewhere and a lot of us will be, you know, possibly deceased by then, you know, but it's, I believe that we don't actually take up weapons and join the fight. All right. We are heading into the uh, top of the hour, and uh, Allie Anderson Henson and Donna Howell will stay with us. We'll open up the phone lines as well, take your questions, comments, and hopefully here are some angelic encounters, and Allie and Donna will share some as well from their book. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in a moment. Don't go away.